let's pray together. Father, we, we recognize that you see all human hearts, and they are all open. And Father, I am asking that you give us the courage to come to you, uh, to stop us from hiding from you and trying to keep things hidden in the, in the shadows of our hearts. Father, we know that um, um, a proper shame didn't keep us from doing things this last week, from saying things and thinking things and using the wrong words and, and uh, doing the wrong things that are maybe selfish. But, uh, Father, we also know that it's false shame that keeps us from confessing to you. And so we want to come to you with, with all confidence and knowing that you are a God of comfort, that your, um, your tenderness is part of who you are. It's part of that covers everything that you do. And so, Father, we come to you because we crave forgiveness. We crave restoration. You are our refuge. You are the refuge for anybody who has enough sense to seek you out. And so we are seeking you out. From the beginning of time, you, just, you, you have given life, and you are the source of life for us. You are the source of all knowledge and the giver of all goodness. Father, the patriarchs trusted you, the prophets sought you, the psalmist praised you and rejoiced in you, the, the, um, the apostles waited for you, the martyrs called out to you, and, and the poor cry out to you, and Father, we are crying out for you. We, we thank you for the witness of the scriptures of these people of faith who went before us, who bear testimony to who you are and how good you are. And so, Father, we ask that we follow those pointers uh, in the direction of your mercy and your grace, and that you empower us to do the same, and that you empower us to continue to point people to where the place where they can find uh, love and grace and mercy. And so, Father, we give thanks to you this morning, especially for Jesus Christ who came to make this all possible. And uh, we ask that you help us to, um, to recognize what we have in the Savior. And we give you this time this morning as we look into your scriptures and ask your blessing on the preaching and the hearing of your word. We thank you for Connie and reading this passage so beautifully that it's just so powerful to our hearts. And we ask that you make it real this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. This morning, I was going to kind of try to close up um, uh, some of the Isaiah servant passages and maybe finish up with a, with a couple of end of the, end of the chapter, end of the book uh, chapters of Isaiah. And uh, so this was going to just kind of wrap up the servant songs. And um, the more I kind of got into it, the more I quickly realized, well, that wasn't really that quickly. Actually, it was Saturday morning. Uh, I realized that this is going to have to be two sermons. So... So maybe you're, you're lucky. It's like it's going to be shorter this time instead of a lot longer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so then he gives, gives me a fist bump. All right. <laughs> so yeah, so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to talk about what, what this means, this, this, these servant songs. What does this mean for us today? Um, let's see here. If I can get this on here. Here we go. Uh, we'll be covering the rediscovering the church's vocation to spanning this large poem of Isaiah 40 to 55, focusing in on those four famous uh, servant psalms in, uh, in Isaiah. I may have talked about this movie before called The Arrival, um, partly because I love it so much. It's a great science fiction film. Uh, it's not typical science fiction where all the, you know, the aliens come to either, either uh, conquer us or eat us. 
Uh, this is more of an alien film where it, it has a lot of depth to it. And these alien ships kind of appeared over the, over the globe. It's, I think it was a 2016 movie, maybe. I'm not real sure. And, uh, and they're trying to communicate to us. And so they, they, the military calls in a physicist and a linguist. Amy Adams plays the linguist to try to decipher their language. And when she starts to understand and does, starts to, to apply these linguistic principles, she starts to be able to understand what they're saying. And the thing is, she starts having memories, but not just of the past. She starts having memories of the future as well. And uh, evidently, with the aliens, these, these, this language, they think in, in terms of a sphere or a circle. And for them, time is not linear like it is for us. And so she starts having these dreams and memories about things that haven't happened yet. And it turns out that she has these memories that she had married this physicist that she's working with, and they have a daughter. And the daughter just brings incredible joy to their lives, and her life specifically. Uh, but then she also has the memories that this daughter, unfortunately and, and, and sorrowfully, has an uncurable disease and will die in her early teens. And so the core of this movie, like good science fiction, is not about aliens and how we respond and whether we're going to attack them or destroy the earth or whatever. The core, like good science fiction, the, the, it's about a core problem, a core issue. And the core, the core point of this movie is she has a decision to make. She can see what's going to happen to her in the future, and it's going to bring great joy, but it's also going to be, bring incredible pain. And the question is, will she go ahead and decide to do that? Will she play that out? Will she marry the physicist and will she have a daughter? And that, I wonder, if the question the movie asks is, what would we do? What would I do if I knew that? If I knew that this, this certain thing was going to bring me great joy, but at the same time bring me great sorrow, how would I respond to that? Uh, a lot of people have to make decisions similar to that anyway. They, it's not theoretical. It's actually real in, in a lot of areas. Well, it's also not theoretical for God. He understands what's going to happen. He understands this is what it's going to go through. What it's, and and he's, he's asking himself, is he going to pay the price? Jesus knows this is how it's going to play out. We see these servant songs, and they talk about this sacrifice that God is going to make. And he has to ask himself that he is going to be beaten and, and killed eventually, and is this worth the joy that he will have with a restored relationship with us? And so he's pondering some of these verses like uh, in, that we've seen before. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exhausted and lifted up and shall be very high. And then he goes on to say, just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals. In other words, he was so disfigured we couldn't even look at him. So she shall startle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told of them they shall see and that which they had not heard they shall contemplate. And then I'll go on to Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth. So God's got to decide and Jesus has to decide, okay, this is what I've got to look forward to. There's this, there's this potential joy of this restoration with the human race and yet he has to go through this 
this great sorrow, is it worth the price? Is it worth the cost? And he decides that it is. And it is so astonishing that kings shut their mouths because this is not how you rule the world, is it? This is not how you have power. You have it like this. And so it leaves kings and rulers speechless. This is astonishing. So what I want to do this morning is kind of make sure we are telling the right story about this. Do we tell the right thing? Are we saying the right thing? The father and son knew this, and out of love, he, he took this. He was shamed, he was beaten, and he was killed, all because of the joy. And so I'm going to ask a few questions. When we look at this, these uh, servant songs, how did ancient Israel understand this story? When you think about it, when you try to use your historical imagination, which I think is super important if we're going to understand the scriptures, that you, you see the, the, the Jews leaving Babylon from exile, and they're coming back to the land, and uh, it, they come back to empty buildings. There's nobody there because they've been in captivity. And then Isaiah says, oh, but you're going to expand your tents. You're going to have to build because it will be so full, and yet this is what we've got. And so they're back here, but it's still not quite the same. And you look at the prophets that come after, they come after the exile, and they're back there, and you have Malachi who's saying, he's still warning them to come back to God, to, to abandon their wicked ways. And you go to Zechariah, and you have him still saying, yeah, God, God's on the way, God's on the way. So they're thinking, well, we're back. Why hasn't he come back? Why isn't this, why isn't this prophecy fulfilled? We're here. And then you go a little bit further down, and, and you think, well, things are, 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 are starting to pick up, and and you see the, uh, the high priest up there, and he's carrying on the sacrifices. He's teaching the Torah. He's teaching the law. And people are going, okay, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is God returning. The priest is up there. He's carrying on the duties. He's in the temple. All this stuff is going on. This is the way God returns. And then all of a sudden, you have the tragedy of the Maccabeans. The Syrian and the Greek armies come in and conquer that area again, that area of the promised land again. And you have the Maccabeans revolting because they, they had defiled the temple. And that's where we get the celebration of Hanukkah. You're going, so this isn't happening yet. And then now you've got Rome moved in. And now they're occupying the land. And you have Rome putting up Herod, who is this puppet king. But Herod builds this enormous, enormous temple. It's a beautiful temple, basically just to solidify his own dynasty. But yet Rome is occupying them, and they're going, well, where is this coming in? Maybe we have to suffer this persecution, and it's not really messianic at all. It's not kingly at all. We have to suffer this persecution so God will finally come back, and we have to suffer this. And then you get to about the time of Jesus, and you have some rabbis saying, well, yeah, that, those servant songs in Isaiah are talking about a, a Messiah, but he's not the one suffering He's the one inflicting the suffering. And so you have him teaching that this Messiah is going to come and he's going to do the suffering. He's going to inflict the suffering on the enemies, on God's enemies, and this is how it's going to happen. So that's what they're thinking. How do we understand it? And it's important that we get the story right because we can't just scoop Isaiah 53 out of its, of its context and say, uh, yeah, this is... that." Uh, that the whole thing is just that Jesus died, died for our transgressions and that's it. And so, so that's, that's, that's the end of, end of the story. 
And by far, that is the central message of the gospel. It is the foundation message of the gospel. But it's not the whole story. It's out of context. And so we end up telling ourselves the wrong story. We end up telling ourselves that, oh, we're trapped in this wicked world and we need to, be, we need to escape it. And so uh, God punishes Jesus and kills him so that we can escape this world, this material world of, of space and time and material things, and so we can escape, escape it and be with, be with God. You will not find that story in Isaiah. You will not find that story in the Bible. You will find that story in Plato, but it's not Plato. This is something else. We have to make sure we're telling us telling ourselves the right story, that God is reclaiming the earth. He is coming as king. And he's doing it in an astonishing, incredible way. This is the right story. He is dealing with sin, true. But he's dealing with sin to establish himself as king. And if we don't understand the roots of this story in the Old Testament, we won't get just how explosive the Jesus story is. If we don't understand that, we, will just, we, we, will, we, won't, we won't realize just how astonishing and how, how incredible this story is, that this is a God who renews the covenant, who is restoring his kingdom, that his spirit is working through us, that his spirit was given through us by the breath of God himself, and that God is standing in, that God himself is standing in and taking all this on himself to establish himself as king. And it all comes back in this one phrase in Isaiah, in these, these passages we've been looking at. It's just a two-word phrase in Hebrew. It's just two words, uh, Malik, Elohayik, two words, your God reigns. That's the whole point. He deals with sin so that, his, so that he will reign. He deals with sin that we can come back. In other words, he is saying, the love I have for David, I now have for everyone. And the last two chapters of that, of that poem, 54 and 55, that we saw last week, it is just almost delirious with joy and astonishment. It's just over, over the top. And he's saying, the love I have for David is now available to anyone, everyone, if you're thirsty, if you're hungry. If you want it, I will supply it. God will supply it. I wish we had time also to look at how Paul uses this. Whenever Paul talks about the gospel, and he talks about the gospel a lot, whenever he talks about the gospel, it's almost like he's obsessed with Isaiah 40 to 55. That is always in the back of his mind. Go back and read Romans 4 and 8 and 10, Philippians 2. He will, he will quote a portion of that prophet, a portion of that poem from Isaiah. And we know that when, you, when the New Testament writers quote a portion, it carries with it the whole passage. So when you go back and you see Paul quoting something out of Isaiah, go back and look at where it comes from. That's what's in Paul's mind. If I were to tell you we hold all these truths as self-evident, that all men are created equal, you would know immediately I'm talking about the Declaration of Independence. That's how Paul, that's how the New Testament treats the Old Testament. They will mention a phrase and we automatically know what Paul is talking about. Go back and read Romans through that and with, the, with Isaiah the Isaiah poem in the back of your mind there because that's what Paul is writing about. So what do the, if we say we have to get the story right, well, we need to know what the gospel writers understand the story. How do they understand the story? For them, Jesus is the supreme culmination. 
the supreme culmination of the story of Israel. That we have this representative Israel who comes, and this is all part of this larger, longer purpose of God rescuing his people, rescuing his creation, and he does it through a suffering servant. That God himself takes on the pain and the horror and the death and the suffering to establish himself as king. This is how he does it. And this is so out of the, out of the mind of the, of the first century Jew that Jesus has to tell all these stories to try to get his point across. He tells stories about a sower sowing seed. He tells stories about a father trying to restore his two sons. He tells stories about a woman looking for a lost coin. He tells all these stories to try to get his point across that this is how God is going to do that. This is how he's going to do it. Matthew introduces us right off the bat with John the Baptist, which is right out of Isaiah 40, that he is the one who is coming and calling in the wilderness. He is making the way straight. He is flattening the mountains, making the way for the place for the Messiah. And then right after John baptizes Jesus and, John is, and that Matthew tells us about John the Baptist, what happens? Jesus gets baptized. And what happens is the Spirit comes on him and, and there's a voice that says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, in whom I delight. John just says it right out. John, the Gospel of John says he's the chosen one. And we go back to, to uh, Isaiah 42. What does it say? Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Right out, Matthew is telling us, this is that. This is what you've been reading about. This is what John the Baptist is all about. And Jesus comes preaching the good news, which is what Isaiah 40 says, that he will come bringing good news, and blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. And this is what Jesus is doing. And so when you get to the conclusion of, of his life, it's like he brings them all together. It's like in John chapter 12, it's like John brings all those threads together in the conclusion of the crucifixion, and there's a new focus on Isaiah. And basically he is saying, he is saying this, that the cross and the kingdom are intertwined. You cannot separate them. You can't have the cross without the kingdom, and you can't have a kingdom without the cross, that they are intertwined. If it wasn't for the cross, then satanic power would still rule the day. If it wasn't for the cross, then satanic power would still have authority. But because of the cross, it doesn't. This is where the kingdom begins. Our life in the kingdom begins and ends with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. All in that. The power of the cross. This is something that they did not realize when they crucified him. When Pontius Pilate and the high priests convicted Jesus and convicted him to crucifixion, they did not realize that they were playing right in to God's plan. That they were playing right in to God's purpose. That this is how the victory would be run. That these rulers and authorities that had used violence to carve up the earth and carve up the world according to however they wanted to do it, this is God's victory over that. God's victory over their rule. 
Caiaphas represents kind of the power of religion, and Pilate represents the power of the empire. And they didn't realize that they were actually being part of what God was doing. And when Christ comes to the cross and is crucified on the cross, they don't realize that they are unmasked, they are, they are shamed, they are disarmed, they are dethroned, they are defeated. Those powers are defeated. And just like the ancient armies that when they defeated an enemy and they would parade the army through, stripped of their weapons, this is what Jesus does on the cross and they don't even realize it until too late. This is what, this is what the victory does to them and, and he unmasks them and he, and, he, and he dethrones them and he shows them who they really are, usurpers of God's authority. That he is king. And all, all the gospel writers, all four of them come together and tell this paradoxical victory. It all started back with Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. Chapter 12 of Genesis is God dealing with the problem caused by the rebellion. Chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis is all about, uh, that's where you see the result of, the re of human rebellion. You see the rapes, you see the, 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 um, the, the kidnapping of women, you see the murders, you see one brother killing one brother, you see the pride of Babel wanting to take over. And this was planned that started in Genesis and is now carried through and climaxes, culmination with Jesus. That this kingdom is different. It's not a kingdom of violence. It is a different kind of power. Jesus said, I will be lifted up and draw all people to myself. Amen. You have that Mark 10 principle where James and John are coming to Jesus and say, you know, we're talking about power and authority here and Jesus is saying, if I'm going to be the Messiah, we don't do it that way. We're doing it in a different way. There's a different kind of power. This is the God's way, not the world's way. We can trace the Sermon on the Mount back to Isaiah. He's saying this is not a kingdom of brute force. Brute force is the way the empires do it. Brute force is the way that, that the idols want us to do it. But we're going to do it a different way. Not with pomp and intimidation, but with love and mercy and forgiveness. It is a strange new power. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all bring the kingdom message to the cross. Without the cross, there is no kingdom message. When the soldiers put the purple robe on Jesus, the gospel writers kind of say that's, that's their, they're trying to mock him, but John is saying he's wearing the purple robe for a reason. He is the one who is, wears the purple robe. Pilate sort of dances around the idea that Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he doesn't realize in the Jewish tradition that if you name him the king of the Jews, you're talking about the person who's going to be ruler of the nations, ruler of the world, and he didn't realize that. And he tacks even a sign on the cross that says, here's the king of the Jews, sort of mocking them. And he didn't realize how true that was. Full of irony? Yes, but it is totally true. Jesus not only embodies Israel and embodies the human race, he is the embodiment of God himself. He is the embodiment of the promise-keeping, rescuing, renewing God himself. 
He says in John 12, when, when, when John kind of brings all these threads together, he says, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. The Son of Man must be lifted up. He is doing it a different way. Mark 10 says, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke, he says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he who was counted with the transgressors for what is written about is being fulfilled. All of these come directly out of Isaiah 40 to, 45, 40 to 55. So who really is on trial here? <laughs> it's Pilate and Caiaphas and all that they represent. They think Jesus is on trial, but it's not Jesus. It's the powers and principalities of the world. They're the ones that are on trial. And the victory comes through the cross. It is the theme of the New Testament. It is the theme of the gospel writers. And for John, you, think you have to ask yourself, you know, what kind of, how, how, does, how do we even describe this kind of justice? How do we even describe this kind of work? Well, according to the Gospel of John, there's just one word that describes it. Um, there we go. There's only one word that does justice to this kingdom and the cross, and that is the combination, is agape love. That is the only word that gives us this kingdom cross work justice that is the kind of kingdom cross of justice we find only in love and john just tells us in the famous verse john 3 16 for god so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life i've said before that sometimes when you see the overall picture sometimes of, of christianity uh, sometimes you almost get the idea that that we say god so hated the world that we're in such conflict, but God so loved the world. John 13, now before the festival of Passover, Jesus knew that this hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And John 10, I am the good shepherd and I know my own, and my own know me just as the Father knows me. I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep right out of Isaiah 40 to 55. This is the story that he's saying. This is the story that he's telling us. This is the redemptive story. This is the vision that God has had, that it's going to take the death of the lamb for him to be the king and the Messiah that he is there. Without the cross, the satanic rule just remains in place. The cross and the kingdom go together. It is to liberate us from our selfishness. We sang about this this morning, from our fear, from our pride, from guilt, from shame, from law, that God fully, fully accepts us. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit illumines us, illumines our conscience, but not out of condemnation, but out of restoration, out of renewal. The judgment that we hear from God is not, is not vengeful, it's restorative. It's to restore us. That Paul says that there is no person, no thing, nothing on earth that can separate us from that love of God. And we sing about that this morning. I uh, never get tired of um, hearing the Jesus story. 
and I continue to believe that it is the power to transform the world. I never get tired of hearing the Jesus story, and I believe it is the power that subverts and transforms the world. That these are not stories of um, violence and harm. Jesus is not repeating those same old stories that we hear from the world. It's not a patriarchal domination story. It is a story of service and reconciliation and self-giving. It is not one of these violent revolution stories on one hand or this sort of compliant submission on the other hand. It is a story of transformational resistance of what the satanic rule offers us. This is not just some story of uh, purification, of purification codes, of scapegoating other people or blaming other people. This is a story of encountering other people with the love of Christ, engaging with them and telling them and, 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 and loving them. It is a different story than what we hear today, especially today. It is not a story of, of inhabiting this uh, competitive story of accumulation where there are winners and losers. It is a different story than that. It's a story of stewardship. It's a story of generosity, of sharing and giving. And, and it's not a story of scarcity. It's a story of abundance. It's not a story of isolation or escapism. It's a story where Jesus sends his followers out in the world so that they will be agents of the kingdom, agents of salt and light for the world. It is a different story. And it seems like we are trapped in the stories of winners and losers. And in fact, it kind of gets our juices going. You know, I mean, I love sports. And it kind of gets our juices going, these, these, these uh, competitive stuff of winners and losers, and it's, but it's not a story of winners. But we like that, especially when we consider ourselves the winners. We don't like it so much if we think we're the losers. But if we consider ourselves the winners, we like that story. But the suffering serpent tells another story. It's a different story. The other stories, they claim to be a path of success and peace and security and, and all those things, a story of winning. But this story is a story of winning also, just not at someone else's expense. This is a story of winning of abundance. And I, I am certain, I am certain that, that their heart, the hearts of children and teens and uh, adult men and adult women and seniors, I am convinced that they are yearning for another story. That they are yearning for another story that we're hearing today. And to start off this, what, this re, the, what is our response to the servant songs that we'll look at more next week, I think this is where we start. We have to realize that they are yearning for another story and we have a better story. Let's tell it. Let's tell the better story. It's not a story of love and hate. It's a story of love instead of hate. It's a story of creativity instead of destruction. It's, it's, a, it's a story that, that, that offers us a new hope. And I don't know about you, but I am really tired of this, this thin plot line that we are on where there are winners and losers. And I have to see you as a loser for me to win. 
and I have to see them as losers for us to win or whatever. I am really tired of that story. This is a better story. This is a better story of grace and mercy and sacrifice because of the suffering servant. Let's pray.